0: Well, good morning, everyone. This Veterans Day, we say thank you to those of you who have served in our armed forces for however long that uh, you are called to serve. We thank you for that service, that sacrifice. We thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy because of that sacrifice. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We continue our sermon series on the book Of Hebrews, our text you'll find on page 1007 if you're using the blue Bibles that are in the Purach in front of you. Now most of us know the name Leonardo da Vinci. He lived in the 16th century during the Renaissance. He was, you might say, the ultimate Renaissance man as he was a designer, architect, theorist, scientist, engineer, sculptor, and painter. It is his painting talent that, we, uh, that he might be most known for. He painted the world's most famous, the most recognizable, and most copied artwork known as the Mona Lisa. And he painted it sometime between 1503 to 1519, so about 500 or so years ago. And the Louvre has been her home off and on since 1797. The museum estimates that of the 10 million visitors it receives each year, 80% of those visitors are there just to see the Mona Lisa. I was one of those visitors back in 2014, and I was surprised at both how small the painting was and how large the crowd was there to see it. What about the Mona Lisa has enabled it to stand the test of time? How has it transcended changing cultural tastes, And acceptabilities? How has it remained not only relevant, but adored and cherished? How has it endured? Well, that's the question the writer of Hebrews is asking in our text this morning. Only he's not thinking about a work of art, rather, he's thinking about a work of faith. He's writing about an enduring faith, more specifically, the faith that sees and trusts Jesus as the better Savior. As the supreme savior. The faith that moves a Christian to greater intimacy with Christ and to one another. The faith that enables the Christian to stand when life gets hard. When the cost of living the Christian life is expensive. So how does faith in Jesus, which the Bible tells us is of greater worth than gold, endure to the end? How might our faith stand the test of time or well, for that let's read our text again Hebrews 10 I'll be reading from verses 32 through 39 this is God's word but recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Oh God, in this moment, in this hour, we are so aware of our need of your help to understand your word, to be guided by your spirit. And so, O Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that we might not simply hear with our ears, but even hear with our hearts. We pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Some of you know that I served with our former senior pastor, Clay Smith, before coming to Rivermont. We were associate pastors together at Central Presbyterian Church in St. Louis for a number of years, and we served under Dr. Dan Doriani, who you may remember preached Clay's installation in 2011. And Dan has a brilliant mind and is adept at applying God's Word to the Christian life, both as a pastor but also as an author. And I learned a lot from Dan during my time at Central. And one of the wisest things I ever heard him say had to do with framing suffering. As he counseled members who were suffering, who were trying to make sense of their pain, be it physical, relational, or spiritual, he would encourage them with this phrase, remember your theology. Remember your theology. Remember the foundational truth of God's word. Embrace your suffering, yes, but embrace God's truth more. You see, when we suffer, when we experience unexpected obstacles and heartbreak, our faith is tested. It is tried. And it's easy to let suffering shape our faith rather than let faith shape our suffering. It's easy to let suffering dictate what we believe about God and His Word rather than let His Word dictate what we believe about our suffering. This was certainly true for the congregation receiving this pastoral letter. They had been suffering for quite a while, and it seems their endurance was wearing thin. They were beginning to lose confidence. And as, and, and as can happen, these Christians began to second-guess themselves. They began to second-guess their faith in Christ. Had their leaders read too much of Jesus into the Old Testament? Had they gotten it wrong? They wrestled with the cost, the burden of continuing on this path. And some of these believers, we read, had even stopped gathering together with their fellow believers They were wearied and tired of the abuse. It was easier to just slip back into their former beliefs and practices to what was known and acceptable. And yet Pastor David reminded us last week of the warnings the writer gave to his people. He wasn't about to give his congregation a pass because their suffering was hard. He was painfully straightforward with them. If you choose not to endure to the end, if you reject the person and work of Jesus Christ and his spirit, you will lose everything. You will experience terrible judgment, for the Lord will judge his people, and we need to hear that. But at the same time, we also need to hear his exhortation from our text this morning, for he tells us, but don't let this happen to you. Don't lose your confidence or your hope. And he said that as one who could sympathize with their plight. He wasn't an armchair pastor. Removed from their suffering, he had surely experienced it himself. Much like Jesus, who as our high priest could sympathize with our weaknesses. He could do that because in every respect, Jesus had been tempted as they had been, but was without sin. His faith never wavered. And neither did his obedience. So how can ours? Well, the first thing the writer says here for us is that we need to remember our former suffering. And let that sink in for a second. Faith to endure current suffering is best helped by remembering our former suffering. Now, we might have expected or maybe even hoped that he would have said, an enduring faith is one that remembers the good old days. That remembers um, and lives in the times when faith just seemed easier. And we often do that, don't we? we? We dwell on the good times, the easier times in light of the hard ones. I've certainly done that with my kids when they had nightmares. After praying with them, I'd encourage them to think about happy times. Sweet memories with their family. And I did that as a way to try to help them fall back asleep. And yet it's fair to say that the good times, the the easy days, are not what truly define the Christian life. They're not even all that memorable. But what defines our lives, what builds our faith, are the trials and sufferings we've faced. These are what we often remember and consider memorable And I bet many of you could come up with examples right now. Examples of suffering and heartache that God has used to grow your faith. Your faith was tried, but God sustained you through it. Remembering those times are helpful because they help us see where we've been and how far he has brought us. And so the writer says to his congregation, But recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So when did they first endure a hard struggle with sufferings? The text says, after you were enlightened. Now the writer is using the word enlightened to refer to their conversion to Christianity. When their eyes were opened to the person work of Jesus Christ. Much like Saul on the road to Damascus or the men walking on the road to Emmaus. So why was their conversion associated with sufferings? Well, remember that these are Christians who have come out of Judaism. This was no small thing. Leaving Judaism for Christianity wasn't just a rejection of the Jewish faith. In a real sense, it was a rejection of your Jewish family and community. It was a betrayal, and you were cut off and cut out. To use a modern expression, they were canceled. And this would still be true today in Judaism and other world religions like Islam. You're not just rejecting your faith, but your family, your culture, and your community. And this is why the writer says they and their fellow believers were publicly exposed to reproach, to disgrace, as well as affliction and imprisonment. This is why their property had been plundered. In converting to Christianity, they had taken on a new identity, one that was founded in the person and work of Christ, and they paid dearly for it. Some of you know what that kind of reproach and disgrace feels like. You have stories where you experienced a form of rejection or perhaps even mocking from unbelieving family or friends at your conversion. Others of you may have grown up in a culturally Christian family here in Lynchburg. Your conversion was genuine, uh, and your life began to show the fruit of that. And because of that, your family poked fun at you, or your friends maybe even ostracized you. And that's the thing about conversion. When someone becomes a Christian, they don't do it in a vacuum. Their conversion is not neutral. Conversion implies a change It is switching allegiances. It it is transferring your submission from one authority to another authority. It is transferring from one particular worldview like consumerism or materialism or individualism to a Christian worldview. And when a person converts to Christianity, they are turning away from that former allegiance, that former submission Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1 that Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, that's conversion language, into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. That's the heart of conversion. And living in a postmodern, post Christian era, Christianity has largely been viewed as a culturally backward and somewhat irrelevant movement a harmless freckle on the back of society. But a time is quickly coming and in some ways has already come when we will no longer be able to fly under the cultural radar. Christianity will be seen as relevant and dangerous, a malignant tumor that must be cut out of society. We won't be viewed as just culturally backward, but culturally narrow and bigoted. And our worst fears could be realized. The loss of relationship with those we care about. The loss of respect among those we work with. The loss of status in the circles we run in. The loss of material things we enjoy. All taken away because we identify as a Christian. Because we have claimed that there is salvation in no one else except Jesus Christ. Because God's word serves as the rule and practice for our faith and life. And we wonder, when that day comes, will I remain faithful? Will I shrink back? Will my faith endure? But friends, before we worry about those external pressures and sufferings, we need to look at the internal pressure and sufferings our flesh causes us. You see, the call to discipleship is a costly one. After all, Jesus said that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. Denial, death, and dependence. These are all marks of discipleship, and they will cost you and me everything. And there have been many who have been wearied and tired of following Jesus, and you know them. They've lost friends, lost sleep lost clients, lost time, lost status, even lost freedom. Some have wandered away, some have walked away. Submitting our lives under the lordship of Christ is not easy, but it is necessary. It is God's will for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that can only happen if we yield ourselves to his lordship and transforming power. The call to endure is a call to fight, a fight for the faith that was given to us. And what better way for us to do that than to remember our former sufferings, to remember the ways in which God provided for us to endure. He gave us the strength not to be resigned to that suffering, but to embrace it. And when we suffer on account of our faith in Christ, whether it's from external or internal pressures, we are following Christ's example. And if you would have a faith that stands the test of time, you must remember your former suffering and how God has seen you through. In the same manner of remembering our former suffering, we must also remember our future reward. Not just remember it, but be motivated by it, to live for it. Why? Because it has the power to guide, strengthen, and motivate us as we endure suffering. And what do I mean by that? Well, take losing weight. One of the chief motivations for losing weight is the end result, right? The end result of looking better, having better health, Enjoying longer life, having greater energy, taking less medications, and wearing better fitting clothes. Without those future rewards, the difficulty and hardship of losing weight would be hard. It would be hard because losing weight requires what? It requires sacrifice. It requires giving up or moderating foods that we love to eat. It requires sweating on a treadmill or on a yoga mat. It requires going to bed when you'd rather stay up. It requires a complete overhaul, which is not easy. The path to enduring faith comes as we remember our future reward. And what is that future reward that he writes of? Well, there are a couple of places where the writer refers to them. The first comes in verse 34. He said to the uh, the Hebrews, who are heroes, by the way, "...you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property," Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The writer reminded them that they didn't fight that plundering. They weren't even resigned to it. It says they welcomed it with joy. How on earth could they have joyfully accepted it? And why would they have joyfully accepted it? Because they knew there was something better. A possession that outlasted, outvalued, outperformed all other possessions. And that something better was a someone, Jesus. He was their future reward. They could lose their home on earth, but they could never lose their home in heaven. They could lose their treasures on earth, but they could never lose their treasures in heaven. Their lives couldn't be defined by what they owned. But who owned them? That was the better possession these Hebrews needed to remember. They could have everything taken away, and they did. But Jesus could not be taken away from them. He was their one true treasure. They had staked their life and future on. And if your faith would endure to the end, you must remember your future reward In Jesus Christ, you must remember the eternal inheritance that awaits you, an inheritance that will never perish, never fade, never be corrupted, a life lived without sin, a life lived without tears, a life lived without the cares of this life, a life lived in perfection, a life lived before the very face of God. And yet what happens when that future is slow in coming? What happens when our suffering seems more real than those future promises? You see, many in the early church believed Jesus would return in their lifetime. They thought his return was imminent, especially given the ongoing persecutions they faced. They were living as if the day of the Lord was upon them. Some even quit their jobs to wait because they were so sure, but he didn't come. How were they to account for his slowness? The writer addresses this in verses 36 and 37. He says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. And the writer here is referencing a prophecy from the prophet Habakkuk, which we find in Habakkuk 2 3, and 4. It says, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now Habakkuk was a prophet serving prior to the fall of Judah to the Babylonians. And the book of Habakkuk is somewhat different from other prophetical books. Rather than Habakkuk addressing the people for God, he is addressing God himself. He is addressing God for what he perceives to be an injustice on God's part and a slowness in his coming promises. He was first bewildered by God's treatment of Judah. Why would God use a wicked nation like Assyria and Babylon to punish Judah? Not that Judah didn't deserve punishment, but why would he use her enemy, God's enemy, to punish her? And God's response is that both nations are to be appropriately judged for their evil acts. And as Habakkuk wrestles with God's response, he eventually gets clarity. He realizes that God was and always has been in control. And regardless of what it looked like, he would bring punishment to the wicked and justice to the righteous. The biggest question for Habakkuk was was when? When will that come? And Habakkuk isn't given a specific answer. But God's answer to Habakkuk, his answer to the Hebrews, his answer to you and to me, is that after a while, the coming one, Jesus Christ, will come. And he will not be delayed. Nothing will stop his coming at the appointed time. And at that time, he will bring justice for the righteous and punishment for the wicked. Our call is simply to live by faith. For the righteous, he says, shall live by faith. The faith that God has given and is persevering in us. And while that is simple, it is not easy. We know it is not. Faith will be tried. It will be tested. We will second-guess ourselves. Yet we must not second-guess God or his will for us. For as we remember our former sufferings, We see more clearly than ever not only the supply of faith to meet that suffering, but growth in our life from that suffering. And as we remember our future rewards, we see dimly yet confidently that Jesus will in fact bring us to glory. He will... Fulfill once and for all his promise to rid the earth of the presence and effects of sin, and his redeemed people who have persevered to the end will enjoy the blessing of a life no longer stained by sin, but washed fully in the blood of Christ, free to live, to worship, and work for his glory. For as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians, Indeed, I count everything as loss. The life of Corrie ten Boom is a study in incredible suffering, endurance, and love. Most of you know the story of her life, of how she and her family hid Jews in their house in Amsterdam during World War II. A brave and loving act that carried dire consequences if caught. And in fact, they were caught and were sent to Nazi concentration camps. Corey lost everything when she and her sister Betsy were taken from their home and placed in the Ravensbruck camp. Eventually, Carrie lost, uh, Corey lost Betsy in that concentration camp. But Corey lived through that nightmare. And in the years following, she published several books about her time in prison. And God also gave her an incredible speaking ministry. And one of my favorite lines speaks to the call to live by faith, and she said this. She said, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. If I can put it another way, living by faith sees that Jesus isn't the main thing. He's everything. That is living by faith. I happened to be in Orange County, California this week for some board meetings the same county where Corrie Ten Boom is buried. I didn't find that out until the end of the trip, and I would have liked to have visited her grave. If you ever do see her gravestone, you'll find these three words etched just above her name. Jesus is victor. If you and I would know that victory, if you would know that kind of enduring faith, the kind of faith that can stand the test of time, Remember your former sufferings and how God helped you endure. And remember your future reward and how God will persevere you to the end so that you too can confess that Jesus is victor. Let's pray. Oh God, we do recognize that it is easier to think about good times and easier times. But Lord, we would be better served to remember our former sufferings and how you have endured and persevered us through those sufferings. And Lord, may we remember our future rewards that would guide and direct us in our current suffering, whatever stage that might be in, Lord, that we would be assured that our Lord Jesus will come without delay and we thank you for that promise and all the ways that he has been fulfilling those promises leading up to this moment even while we're together oh god we pray that you would sanctify our our memory so that we could remember not just our former sufferings but that future reward we pray in christ's holy and precious name amen